0: Lord, this morning we do praise you that uh, you are sovereign over all of these concerns that we have. And and you uh, know the beginning from the end. We desire to this morning glorify you and to trust in whatever you have for us, particularly in this situation with our country. And we just pray for leadership, pray for the, our president, that he would be wise in the decisions that he makes and the counsel that he receives so we just commit all these things and also for opportunities that you would give us to share you and spiritual things with a lost world we would desire that you would use all of those in a glorious way to bring people to yourself and to accomplish your purposes and as we look into your word today in a difficult area of study lots of controversy that you would in fact uh, give us clarity give us uh, purity of your word. And I would desire that we could communicate clearly and be able to not miss what your word is attempting to communicate to us. So we commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've prayed and we've talked before, we're in the book of Romans looking at a controversial area of study. And as I've said in the email, that the reason we're Taking this little excursus on the doctrine of election is because this is the kind of the underlying and in some verses overt teaching of uh, just about all of chapter nine is this concept or this idea of God choosing. And in chapter nine verses 10 through 13, we have a choice that God make made concerning the descendants of Abraham. We saw in 10 through 13, and I'd like to get into it again, Jacob is the one that is chosen. But even before that, in 6 through 9, we have the focus on the first son, the uh, not the first biological son, but in terms of the line of not only Messiah, but the descendants would eventuate into the nation of Israel, the son of Abraham called Isaac. So God is making choices. So we thought we'd take a little excursus and take a look at this concept of God choosing theologically. Theologians call this the doctrine of election. And I'd just like to remind us, Paul is addressing the people at Rome, and particularly the believers, not just the people in general, but the believers at Rome, and trying to lay out, I believe, the major doctrines that he would have taught them had he been able to visit the city. If you remember on the third missionary journey, I think he gives indications not only in the book of Romans, but other passages in other books that he intended to visit Rome, but uh, was kept from it by the Holy Spirit. And he's running out of time and has to go back to Jerusalem And I think this is part of the plan of God and the the plan of the Holy Spirit to motivate Paul to write the book of Romans. So he's writing probably the theology that he would have taught had he been there. And we can assume that he would have taught these things at other locations, other churches that he founded and visited during his ministry. So we're talking about this the believers at Rome, and he's giving them fundamental doctrines, primarily doctrines relating to the doctrine of justification. That's at the heart of chapters one through eight, where God has provided righteousness, provided his very own righteousness, and The reason I want to develop this is so we get the context, so we understand what Paul is doing in chapter 9, and particularly 9 through 11. So he's gone into a lot of detail, eight chapters outlining how humanity is condemned and lost and lacking in righteousness. There's no none righteous, not even one. In chapter 3, he comes to that conclusion. Then he lays out, well, how do you Receive what God has provided, and it's by grace, through faith, and faith alone. Trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, what Christ has accomplished, and then we are declared righteous. Beginning in chapter 6 through 8, he deals with the Christian walk. How do we live now that we've been declared righteous, and how do we work out this righteousness in daily living so he gives the principle six through eight we call that sanctification so he's dealt with condemnation he's dealt with justification the declaring of righteousness and the forgiveness of sin and then he's dealing with sanctification in these last chapters of this major division six through eight sanctification is growing in righteousness, in other words, conforming to the image of Christ. And the question would arise to his audience in the first century in the city of Rome. The question would be, well, what did God do that changed everything? And what about the Jewish people? We thought that the Jews were God's chosen people. And now all of a sudden you're allowing Gentiles to come in by faith and faith alone. And they don't have to observe the law. What's going on here? So, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul is explaining that uh, God is perfectly righteous in allowing Gentiles to have a part in a plan that he initiated even before there was a nation of Israel, even before there was anything. So, Paul is vindicating the righteousness of God. God is perfectly righteous in not only including Israel, but in... uh, choosing some even within the nation of Israel, and you might even say passing over others. So that's the heart of chapters 9 through 11. And in chapter 9, the first 29 verses, he focuses on the sovereignty of God, God sovereignly choosing Israel. And to illustrate this concept, he goes all the way back to Abraham himself. Now, he could have started with Genesis 3, had he so desired. But since he's addressing Israel, he goes to the beginning of the nation of Israel. And Israel is choice, God's choice, God's chosen people. And that's the reason we're emphasizing this concept. So, I'm going to kind of review what we've looked at, kind of conclude our excursus, and then we'll move on into the next part of Romans 9. So, 29 verses focusing on God's sovereignly choosing, and particularly Israel, that's given to us not only in the book of Genesis, but other passages as well. God is also perfectly righteous, so Paul is vindicating God's righteousness in rejecting Israel in general, in other words, setting them aside And when we look at the details, we will see because they have not received the provision of God's righteousness by faith. In fact, they continue to try to establish their own righteousness based on the Mosaic law. And as a result, and also as a result of rejecting their Messiah, Israel basically is under discipline in a period of time that will exist until... The fullness of the time of Gentiles or the fullness of Gentiles come in and then God is going to again work with the nation of Israel, restoring them. So they still have a future and there's a future restoration. That's chapter 11. So the rejection, chapter 9, 30 through 10, 21 or the end of chapter 10, all of chapter 11 focuses on Israel's restoration where Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. Now, he's looking at it nationally. All Israel in terms of a national entity. And we know from other scriptures that there are some that will continue to reject. They are not in view in terms of the whole nation. So nationally, corporately, there's a future salvation. So God is not done with the nation of Israel. Therefore, the doctrine of replacement theology, I introduced this when we first started chapter 9, that's a false doctrine and should be avoided. Even though many within the body of Christ, even today, hold to replacement theology, the idea that the church in some way has replaced Israel, in fact, in a total way has replaced Israel, and Israel in God's eyes is rejected with no future whatsoever. And what God is doing is working with the church. That's a false doctrine. And that comes from a neglect of chapters 9 through 11, where God is laying out that he has a plan from beginning to end with Israel as the focus. So that kind of gives you a thumbnail sketch of all three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. So the main issue that Paul is dealing with is this gospel, Paul, that you are talking about. This gospel, does this, is this a true gospel in terms of how can we uh, believe it if it deals with Gentiles? And if it deals with Gentiles, what does that mean in terms of Israel? Gentiles can come into a relationship with God simply by faith and faith alone that seems inconsistent with everything that jews thought they understood concerning the old testament secondly another main issue what about israel as god's chosen people it doesn't include gentiles does it it has to focus on israel doesn't it because israel is in fact god's chosen people So these chapters deal with that, and he's attempting to answer this major issue. That's why he deals with Israel's choosing from the very beginning. And thirdly, Gentiles, as I already mentioned, Gentiles coming to God apart from the law. One of the things that's stressed through chapters 1 through 8 is that justification is apart from law. And if that weren't enough, When he gets into the sanctification portion, he also reiterates that sanctification cannot be accomplished through legalistic observance of the law. So, to the Jew, to the nation of Israel, the law is the focus of everything. So, has God initiated something different? Is there a change here? And the bottom line is what Paul is explaining is... Traditional Judaism, and particularly Judaism of the first century, has misunderstood a lot of fundamental passages of the Old Testament, and he's going to explain some of that in chapters 9 through 11, particularly the idea of the Israel as the chosen people of God. So, uh with that, just a real quick review, and then I want to get into the... uh the essence of this doctrine, and then we get, at the end, our concluding part of Romans. In order to understand the doctrine, I think we have to have a total and a balanced view of some of the major doctrines, the nature of man. And very briefly, I believe that man is totally condemned. Another word that theologians use is total depravity. In other words, there's nothing that man can do to gain favor before a holy God. He's utterly unable to do anything that pleases God apart from what God does within him. And I extend that, and I'm going to expand this a little bit in a moment when we get into some of the slides that we ended last time. But the nature of man is such that uh, there's nothing he can do And I think it affects even his volition. I'll expand on that. So you have to understand depravity and the concept that had God not made any choices along the lines of salvation for mankind, there would none that would be saved. So the doctrine of election tells us that God took the initiative in eternity past to choose, and the hard part, is the concept that he chose some and not all. And in fact, we'd have to say he pass, passes over some, and we'll see that concept in Romans chapter nine. So the nature of man, the starting point, is to realize that apart from God choosing any, at least this is my perspective, there would be none that would be saved because there Romans three says there's none that seeks after God. And after a few other comments, Paul says, not even one. So from that starting point, we understand the nature of God and the nature of God is that God is holy. God is judge. God pours out wrath upon sin, but God is also gracious and loving and merciful. And it's from his grace and his mercy And even his patience that God has provided a means by which condemned mankind that has no options and no way of reaching God. God has provided a means by which men may have access to him. And it's through what God has provided, the promise of the Old Testament of a Messiah. And then once Messiah came, the work that a Messiah accomplished on the cross that's the basis for man entering into relationship. So we need to keep the balance, all of the aspects of who God is. And when we come to the doctrine of election, we can trust God that whatever he does, including choosing and if, in fact, passing over, this is part of the wisdom of God and some of it we may not fully comprehend or even understand. So the nature of man, the nature of God, and the nature of salvation and salvation. Faith is required. This is the way that God has set it up. But God has made all of the provision for every aspect. He's the one that took the initiative in the garden. And I think even in eternity past, God is the one that initiates salvation. And in Romans 8, we took a look at various aspects of God working in eternity past, and then how he works in time to draw people to himself, to convict people of their sin, to illuminate individuals of their lostness and their need for salvation. And I would even uh, contend that God even gives the faith to believe because faith is necessary. And if man is... Depraved, I would say that he needs even the gift of faith. And at the moment that a individual trusts in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, at that nanosecond, he is justified. That's Paul's word in the book of Romans. We generally refer to that as salvation, or we could refer to it as a conversion of heart or John describes it as receiving, for the very first time, eternal life. So that's the nature of salvation. And in Romans 8, Paul gives us a chain of foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and even something that we have not experienced yet in the future, glorification. All of them are in the past tense, aorist tense. And even the future from our time frame is put in the aorist tense as if it is completed. And in fact, it is as sure as every one of the other links in the chain. So that's the nature of salvation. Gave you an introduction to this doctrine a couple of times ago. We looked at the doctrine of election. We went, most of our time was over the terms that are used And the terms eklegomai and the noun form and the adjectival form, we looked at them. And by the way, there's others that we didn't look at that uh, are also involved. Now, there are not many passages that have some of those other terms, but there's others that are synonyms to the, the basic term that the doctrine of election deals with. But I also talked about the concept, the concept is broader than just by doing a word study. In fact, I think it permeates a lot of other passages as well. And we also looked at biblical concepts, large categories that deal with God's election. And the reason I introduced that is because in Romans 9, we have one of those categories as the focus. And we'll be looking more at that in more detail. So I mentioned that this doctrine in its broadest sense, God, you can think in terms of, and I gave you lots of examples, you can think in terms of, in a very broad sense, God made choices. In fact, within the nature of God is God has volition. This is one of his aspects. And when he created man and he created us in his image, he built within us. The ability to make decisions and choices, to be able to reason and to select. And the way the Bible reveals God is God has volition as well. So there's a general sense. And it begins even before he created. God did not need, if you understand the nature of God, he had no need to create anything outside of himself. He is self-existent and what that means he has no need for anything outside of himself so he had no need for a universe but he chose and decided to create a universe and within that he has a, an entire plan and if you remember I mentioned within that plan that he has revealed to us includes obviously mankind but it includes lots of other aspects and in that revelation In a general sense, there's lots of passages that speak of the will of God, God's will. There's passages that speak of the purposes of God. God has a plan and a purpose, and it's very specific in some cases, general in other cases. But God has a plan where he is exercising volition and exercising a will And the whole will of God would fall within this idea of God making choices, making selections. I should have mentioned the term eklegomai, the verb, basic, just basically has the idea of choosing from different options, one choice over another. And God has built within man that capacity on a limited, obviously, basis, In fact, all of our aspects are finite and limited. And when it speaks of God, his are eternal and his choices and all of the perfections of God are infinite. And we might even say that uh, we don't have the capacity to understand fully all of the perfections of God, including his will and including these aspects of God making choices and decisions. We see God revealing in Genesis chapter 2 the consequences of sin, and after Adam and Eve's sin, then they find themselves basically dead spiritually. In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you shall die. In fact, die dead. It's an infinitive absolute in the Hebrew text there. And when they partook, I believe they died. So we looked at the concept of death in Scripture. And what does that mean? It affects every aspect of our being, our intellect, our emotions, our relationships, and I would say our volition. And at that point, God reveals to us that, that part of his plan included a plan of redemption or salvation or justification because all of the elements are there in Genesis 3, but God is the one that takes the initiative, indicating that this is part of his plan. So this is kind of the general sense. And throughout history, we see the unfolding of these choices that God has made, and specifically in Israel. And then we see it worked out and revealed in more detail in the New Testament. And we can group this doctrine where the word is used to describe specific categories, you might say. And there's even a verse that includes angels, the first Timothy five twenty one.
1: Hey, uh, before you go on to angels, uh just go back to Adam for a minute.
0: Okay? Please. Sure.
1: So uh, what do you have to say uh concerning any biblical revelation about how Adam's relationship with God was restored not not his redemption but but how his relationship was restored
0: well i think the two go together hand in hand i think he received now genesis 3 doesn't it's not crystal clear but i think there's a little Couple of little indications in there that God granted salvation. What was the other aspect, salvation, and what what was the other one? My mind. Went. Oh
1: well, it's it, it, how did he? You know, he he died both uh, he he died physically and spiritually. It wasn't apparent that he the rest that physical death yet. But uh, how was he? How was his res How was he restored? How was his spiritual relationship restored with okay. God at that?
0: Well I'd say in every sense of the idea of salvation that he was restored. I think Maddie has a question there maybe. But anyway, let me answer it and then I'll get to Maddie if she is going to respond there. I'd say Adam, the evidence that Adam and it doesn't say this in in Genesis 3, but I think Adam and Eve believed Genesis 3:15 that God would deal through the seed of the woman.
1: And they received the sacrifice that God made on their behalf.
0: Yeah, I'll get there. Mm -hmm. I believe that they believed that passage and as a result were regenerated, Adam and Eve, and the evidence of that is that God clothed them. We have in seed form in Genesis 3, I think every aspect of the doctrine of salvation that is developed further, And as you read further in Scripture, particularly in the book of Revelation, where clothing or being clothed, and even in Genesis, God clothed them. The idea of clothing is the giving of righteousness to cover sin and to make them, in a converted sense, restoring that relationship. And I think Adam, his relationship was restored and another evidence in Genesis three is the naming of Eve. Her name means life. So he, he trusted that through the woman, the seed of the woman and through her, there would be life. Life would come. So those little indicators in Genesis three indicate a relationship restored, but it's God that provided, God took the initiative in addressing them to begin with. They're fleeing. God takes the initiative to speak to them and go through the whole chapter there. So back, does that answer your question? And Maddie, did you have a comment there?
1: Yeah. So this is Bill.
0: Oh, Bill. I couldn't tell your...
1: Well, okay. you couldn't see my bald head, so...
0: I couldn't see it.
1: You know, so I had a question going back a little bit with regards to your belief that God gives... Believers, the faith to believe in him. Uh, my question is, and I remember you saying after one of the classes, you don't believe in limited atonement. You believe that Christ died for all. Yes. But if God only gives some the faith to believe, doesn't that really simply reduce down to a limited atonement after all?
0: I don't think so because of like second Peter chapter two verse one and there's some there's a couple of other verses as well so i don't think i think those that are calvinistic the ones that are five pointers it is logical in other words it can lead that logically but if it goes against scripture then uh then somewhere your logic gets a little bit off the rails if you will does that make sense so I don't think it necessarily leads to that because of uh, some of the passages that we find in Scripture.
1: And what are the nature of those passages? Hmm? What's the nature of the passages you're referring to?
0: The Second Peter two one, where it basically, in the context of false teachers, and it talks about Christ dying for them. Yeah, I'll let you look it up.
1: Right. Yes. Who's this? Yeah. This. Uh, yeah. I, for myself, and you can correct me if you wish, uh, I tend to link universal redemption and universal atonement to uh, Jesus' position as federal
0: head, as second Adam. Okay. And, and that's just, that's all I wanted to say. Uh, I, I link it to federal headship. Okay, I don't like the phrase universal, what did you say, universal redemption?
1: Well. Unlimited atonement, unlimited redemption.
0: Okay. Okay. I am, yeah, uh, I, I, I shouldn't have. Okay. Universal is a bad word, but
1: no. The uh, the technical terms right. are uh, right because right. when but you I, say I, I link them both to federal headship. Jesus died for everyone.
0: Okay. Well,
1: ultimately, but it's of course the rejection of many that they don't get saved.
0: Yeah, I can go. I can go with that. I would agree with that. Good. Okay.
1: I guess that. Um, I have a little bit of a difficulty with that with regards to God's nature of being loving and scriptures that say, for God so loved the world. Yes. Now, I agree with you that God chooses those who will be saved. So we're, we don't have a difference there. Right. It's just that if God so loved the world, clearly God did not have to save. And as you said, if God did not choose to save, no one would be saved, because it would make sense that God, if he chose not to save, would not send a Savior, and therefore there would be no finished work of Christ upon which to base salvation. But it seems inconsistent, then, with God's character of loving the whole world to provide the sacrifice for all, but then withhold the faith from some. And to yeah. essentially limit that faith to believe, and essentially um it kind of becomes am I tell me if I'm wrong, it almost seems like it becomes double predestination
0: well, by I don't default. yeah, I don't believe in double predestination maybe maybe this comment might be helpful. I don't think that God necessarily withholds faith per se, but I do think that God does pass over. And I'm going to try and make that clear later on. And I think there's a measure. The way I like to think about it is there's a measure of common grace where everyone is given common grace, even in the area of believing. He doesn't wipe out. He doesn't. Our, our volition is not eradicated in terms of decisions. But depravity is such that uh, man left on his own does not choose God, does not believe in God.
1: God clearly must be the initiator and is the initiator in salvation. Right. Since, and that, that would be the point of Ephesians 1 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Right. So we, we can't get back before that clearly.
0: Mm hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I'm going to expand on a lot of what we're talking about here. Yeah, we'll get back we'll get back to it and see if the expansion is not helpful. Anyway, there's a category. I won't get into it again just real quickly. I just wanted to get over this real quick. You can look at that first Timothy five twenty one. There's a couple of ways of taking it. I gave you kind of the two possibilities there. There's even the category of Christ, and one of the passages is the Luke nine thirty five. I gave you a couple of others as well, and there's others, by the way, that I didn't give you where there is a sense in which Christ is God's selection. And I use these two. These are two categories. Well, let me backtrack a little bit. When it talks about the doctrine of election, it does not always refer to choosing for salvation. It is simply passages where God is choosing something. And it. I believe that It is always for a purpose as well. There's always a purpose. It's not random. It's not arbitrary, but there's always a purpose. And in the case of angels, angels aren't saved. Demons can't believe. Demons are locked into their lostness. So the choosing has to be something along the lines of God selecting some for preservation is a good way of maybe viewing that. If, in fact, there is a choosing there. Now, that verse could also refer to them as select or in that qualitative sense. I told you that last time. Similarly to Christ, Christ is not chosen for salvation. Christ is chosen in terms of the Savior, basically, the one that would provide the means. But the word, I think the noun form is in reference to Christ in that Luke passage. So. There's a sense or a category of Christ. It's not for salvation, but for a multitude of purposes at the heart of it is basically to be the means by which God would save. Similarly, also, we have several individuals for particular tasks, and I included even Cyrus when I gave some of the passages where the word is in that context and there's a variety of others individuals like Moses and David and obviously Abraham which is the focus in Romans chapter 9 and then there's a category that I didn't give a lot of detail because we're going to expand this category that refers to the nation of Israel that is the focus of Romans 9 and as we get through Romans or go through Romans 9 my intention is to bring out some of these passages. But very clearly, I don't even know if I gave you a passage concerning the choosing of Israel. Let me look for one real quick here. Okay, here we go. Deuteronomy, this is the verse I was looking for. Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6 and 7. And remember, this is written as God is preparing the nation of Israel to enter into the promised land, they're not even a nation yet. They're on the verge of entering the land, and it's not until they have the land that they're a full-fledged nation, because you have to have a land to be a nation. But Deuteronomy 7, 6, and seven, for you are a holy people to God. In other words, God has set them apart from all of the other peoples. Then it goes on. The Lord your God has chosen, and we have the Hebrew word, Bachar. the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Very clear selection, choosing. From the options of all of the other peoples, God chooses the nation of Israel. Then verse 7, for the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you. There's Bahar again. Nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. In other words, I think he's implying here that uh, the selection is not on the basis of them. And there's other verses as well that kind of expand upon that. The idea that God simply chose freely, sovereignly, a people, and in fact created them via Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's a major category. And there's lots of verses in the Old Testament. And Romans 9 is kind of the focal point in the New Testament. I also mentioned that the, the New Testament, Ephesians 1-4, referring to believers, and there's, here's where a lot of the controversy lies in terms of this doctrine, and that's what I want to expand next. So, the concept in the New Testament, in the, the church age, God selecting believers, in what sense and what is meant by Ephesians 1-4, and I want to kind of Deal with this doctrine in relationship to the believer and, and then we'll go from there to Romans and this will complete kind of this overview or this excursus on divine election or the doctrine of election. The common view is that God, and this is very common in the body of Christ and even within our circles of the most conservative Bible believers, God foresaw those, in other words, in terms of his election, he foresaw, using even the Romans 8 passage that we expounded, God foresaw those who would choose him. In other words, in his omniscience and in his foreknowledge, God sees who is going to choose him. And then on that basis, he chooses them. That's very common. And in fact, Probably many of you would hold to that idea as well. Now, I have a little bit of a problem with that, and I want to expand. And here's pretty much where we left off. And It may not have been clear last time, but I'd like to go through my chart here, and then we can uh, get into the, the Romans passage. And hopefully, I probably won't answer all the questions because there is a tension here that, like The doctrine of the Trinity, how do you understand God existing in three persons and yet still one? This kind of doesn't add up mathematically, you might say, or it's hard to put together. The doctrine of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, how do you put the two together? There's a tension there. And I think there is a tension in this doctrine in some of these areas and uh we fall sometimes on one side or the other. But I think like the Isaiah 55 passage, some of these things may be beyond our, should we use the word pay grade or beyond our human uh, finiteness. So there'll be some tensions here that I will not be able to resolve. And I'll give you two options And I'll leave it up to you to decide which one makes the most sense to you. So I've got option number one and option number two. Option number two is where I land in the tension. And I'm talking about two options within the most conservative, the most theologically placed closest to all of us that are part of this group here. First of all, dealing with the depravity of the will Option number one, and I think you alluded to this, Bill, there is a capability. In other words, depravity does not, and we might say eradicate, even though I don't believe that our will is eradicated as well. I don't think that's the case. But the will has the capability to believe. And I would say that depravity is such, and I would base it on uh, Genesis 3, where death affects every aspect of who, are, who we are. Our intellect. Now it doesn't mean that our minds or our intellect is eradicated by the fall. And I would use an illustration that there are brilliant unbelievers. In other words, they have a magnificent capacity to reason and to think and to accumulate knowledge so that the mind is not eradicated in any way. But when it comes to spiritual things, there's none that understands. That's Romans 3. That's what Paul says. In other words, to understand spiritual things, to understand even the import of the gospel message, man is incapable. So the, the intellect is not eradicated. I would say similarly, the will is not eradicated. But in terms of a capacity to believe, the passage goes on. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. All have made the choice. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. That's kind of the end product of the decisions. So I would say that depravity, I would call it total, in that man is even incapable of believing and God in his working in an individual, I could even go to the extent of saying that he gives faith. Now, let me give you one passage that I would base that on. I don't use the Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 because there's some issues in the Greek text in terms of the gender there.
1: With regards to, and that and that of yourselves. Say that again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves; it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast.
0: Right. Yeah. But, uh, the gift there, or what, and what and is the, is the, the salvation? Is, yeah. The, what is the issue there? I don't use that verse, but the Philippians one twenty nine. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake. In other words, granting, uh, giving, you might say. For yeah. Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So that kind of gives me an indication. Or the Second Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And you could even use john six twenty nine jesus Jesus answered and said to them, "This is the work of God that you believe in him whom He has sent and if you want another one, James one seventeen, which is not so clearly related to believing, but every good gift from the Father of Lights, you might say i 'm loosely translating it, so I think God not only convicts, in other words, God starts an eternity past and he works, he calls us, he works within us to convict, he works within us to make us us understand the gospel and I think he even gives us even faith. Now, you might debate that. I'm not going to quibble over that, but if in fact he does, then uh, at that moment we believe and we trust in him. Now, let me go further because I'm going to talk about faith at the bottom of the slide there, faith being essential. So we'll come back to this. So
1: Ray, may I ask a quick question? Yes. So answer. regarding depravity of the will and volition. Um, well, I guess with regards to these two views,
0: sorry, go ahead, Bill. I, I, I might've.
1: Okay, there we go. And, with regards to these two views, the view that I've held tends to kind of fall in the middle of these. Okay. And I was curious with regards to total depravity, um, I still, well, I wonder about how your view of total depravity works in the sense of, all right, God reaches out to someone. So it's not that the the person in there depraved state goes and seeks God, so we're not going against the Romans chapter 3 passage. But how does that still work when God initiates? And I'm, I guess I think of an example would be, we know that Cain was not saved because he he left, he ceased following God, and yet it was rather interesting that God had a conversation with him and sought to draw him in. Now, this this does get into other points of Calvinism as to whether or not you think God's grace is irresistible or resistible, but I guess I'm just curious what you think about that with regards to depravity of the will, and there are still people who will not trust in God. Obviously, we see it all around us, and yet God still reaches out as in the case of Cain.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's consistent with Scripture. When you get down to the offer under volition there, I also believe that whoever believes, in other words, I kind of believe the same thing as option number one, that uh, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. I mean, that's clear. God, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes, shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. So, and there's virtually hundreds of these verses. So you have to take those into account and the offer is there. But at the same time, it appears that obviously, well, it's obvious that not all believe. And according to Paul, none seek. So I don't use, back to number two there, I don't use the concept of free will because I think our will is depraved and sinful and lost, but our volition, we have the ability and the capability of exercising decisions. And if none seeks, that's not on, that's not to be put on God. That is because of, de- that's the nature of depravity is such that none seeks. That's the way I would put it. So Just sleep. Now. Free will, I don't think the will of sinners is free. In fact, I would tend towards Luther uh, in terms of his description of the bondage of the, bondage the will. Of the will. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the author, whoever believes, whoever trusts, regardless, uh, God is not standing in the way. Oh, you're not chosen. Uh, you can't believe. I'm not going to grant you in. I don't think that's the situation. I think the situation is such that depravity is such that our lostness keeps us from believing, but it does not lift the availability of what Christ has done to anyone. Does that make sense? So, I think overall man is fully responsible so again i would be on the same page man is fully responsible he's been given enough revelation romans 1 and in romans 1 basically says there you know there's none with excuse none will be able to stand before god and say well i wasn't chosen or he's not going to say i didn't have uh enough revelation i didn't No enough. I didn't hear. No one is ever going to be able to do that based on general revelation. And I think many will have the gospel message presented to them as well. And they have rejected it because of depravity. So man is fully responsible and God is not responsible for choosing them for damnation. And that's that double... Predestination. Predestination uh, idea. Man is fully responsible. So, so those I, two Go ahead.
1: And this is Bill. It's okay. Those two areas, volition and responsibility, uh, provide the biggest rub for me with regards to Calvinism. I believe that God is fully just, and I agree that no one will be able to look at God... At any point and say you cheated me. That's right. Have a difficult time with regards to the concept of volition and God giving the ability giving to believe. Give. Yeah. Okay. I, into yeah. God's justice.
0: Yeah. There is a tension there, and I'm just telling you, I will fall on that side. You're falling on the other side. That's well, fine. I, I
1: That's still fine. think I'm falling in between. Okay. With a Molinist view, but no problem. Thanks.
0: So man is fully responsible. Option number one in terms of salvation, it's God from start to finish, but man must believe. And I would say that the work is totally of God, even down, and I will grant you, uh, I don't have a problem with that God and belief, but I would say there's an element where God grants or convinces me that this is the only option and gives me everything that I need to believe. Does that make sense? Is that possible? So I would view it as a total work of God from election for knowledge to calling to justification to believing and to uh, glorification. So Faith, I think, is essential. I think it's crystal clear in scripture. There's hundreds of passages in the Gospel of John itself. So it's essential. It's required. I, I would go along with that and use the same verses. Man must believe. It's required in order for salvation. And the next page here, what is the basis of this election? Option number one for knowledge and I'm not sure if everyone in number one would say that's all that's involved for knowledge and those who believe the basis of in other words the necessity of belief and for knowledge. I would say sovereign choice. In other words, God choosing an eternity past or before the foundation of the world, if you want to use the Ephesians one four passage and it's not on the basis of God foreseeing who would believe or on the basis of anything in man, this will be developed further in Romans chapter 9. Now, again, Romans 9 deals with Israel. So whether or not that also applies to the individual, uh, we'll talk about that when we get to the passage. And those who believe, I think the basis is not anything in man. In other words, God not foreseeing those who would believe, but nothing in man, God's sovereign choice. Now, he has purposes and he has a plan, but he is sovereign over that choice. So that's where I would fall on that side. And I would say that God's choosing, there are many things that God chooses with a variety of purpose. Option number one, when it comes to this doctrine of election, they clearly say that it's not for salvation. And uh, I would say there's lots of passages where it's not for salvation, but I, I would not exclude salvation. So I would say various. And the objects in option number one, even the Ephesians one, they would claim that you have plurals in chapter one. Ephesians 1 referring to a corporate choosing of the church in general. And I would say in terms of the plurality, I would say yes, but he's addressing a church, but it includes individuals. And if you're going to do the corporate thing, What about all of the other things? Because you have Ephesians 1 beginning in verse 3 all the way to verse 14, one sentence and you have a similar structure that goes through the whole passage and it refers to different blessings that God has blessed us with. The one that starts off is the doctrine of election, but you have predestination. You have redemption. Is redemption corporate? I could see where you would be consistent and say that predestination would be corporate. But what about redemption? And what about all of the verbs? You have subordinate clauses from 3 to 14 where you have these verbs. They're all in the aorist, past tense. They all are similar. They're all plural. Are are those references simply to the church or are there individual application like the redemption all the way down to verse 13 and 14, the ceiling is that corporate? The inheritance that is referenced in there, is that corporate simply? So which are and which are not, I'd say if you want to look at them corporately, I have no problem, but I think it also works itself down to the individual. And I think Romans 9 is going to support that idea when we get into some of those passages as well. So Romans 9 specifically, corporate Israel, yes. In fact, I'm going to stress that. But does it eliminate the individual? I would say probably not. And we'll discuss that as we get into Romans 9. So number one, uh, does this glorify God? I'd say yes, absolutely. It definitely does. And I would say that option number two glorifies God even to a greater extent because God is credited with even granting faith. So that's kind of my viewpoint. And a contrast, and I don't expect everybody, in fact, probably nobody agree 100%, you're to be Bereans, check this out, do your own word studies, do your own study of scripture, come to your own conclusion. I'm just trying to lay out the options here in terms of this doctrine. I think a more biblical view is by God's grace, in eternity past, God or he sovereignly chose some in Christ without regard to anything in man. In other words, not foreseeing belief or good works or anything or personality or qualities, but simply his own choice, sovereign choice for his own purposes. And he has a purpose. And some of them are laid out in some of the specific passages. So that's the doctrine there. I'm not sure I satisfied all your questions, but we can discuss it further. Let's get back. I don't think, how long have we been going here? I don't even know. Almost. We're basically over time, almost. huh? Everybody good yet? If you need to leave, go ahead. Okay, let me kind of wrap this up and we'll pick up and we'll get into Romans 9. I didn't expect to have this much interaction, but that's okay. It's good. Romans 9, and let me just kind of summarize and then we'll conclude and then we'll pick up in Romans 9 next time. Obviously, in the major division of vindicating God's righteousness, chapter 9 through 11, the verses that we're in, verses 1 through 29, we're in the middle of it. We're actually closer to the beginning. God's past sovereign election of Israel. That's the focus. So the doctrine of election, and I think the idea of sovereignty runs through the whole passage, so I call it sovereign election. It's introduced, first five verses, with Paul sorrowful that many of his fellow Jews do not have the salvation that he's described in chapters 1 through 8. He sorrows and he reflects on their privileges as the people of God and nowhere does he indicate that they've lost that privilege. So, I think they still have it, but they're not enjoying the benefits of that privilege because they've rejected Messiah. But it's not as if the word of God has failed. In fact, that's the issue that he's going to deal with. So, Verses 6 through 13, he's going to vindicate God's word. And he goes all the way back to the beginning of the nation of Israel in Abraham and uh, the Isaac and Ishmael. But the bottom line is what he begins here is he's distinguishing even within the nation, even within Israel. He's saying that not all of Israel is really true Israel, we could say. So we could diagram this as all of Israel, representing the dark blue there, as ethnic, national Israel, all descendants of Abraham. But there is a true Israel who are the true children of God, and they're the children of promise. That's the emphasis of nine or six through nine. And he's he's distinguishing here, first century. In other words, as he looks at his people, his brethren, he calls them, he sees that God has made a distinction and there are some within the nation who have trusted in the Messiah. He's thinking of the, the disciples. He's thinking of the early believers that were primarily Jewish. He's thinking of himself. He's thinking of others that have trusted in Christ even after the early part of And he's not talking about the church. He's not talking about Gentiles. He doesn't even bring Gentiles into the picture until verse 24, where he will focus on them to explain and to reiterate what God is doing in this period of time that we call the church age. But he's dealing throughout with the nation of Israel. So that's kind of the essence. And I'll pick up next week, and we'll get into more detail in the book of Romans. Any other comments or questions? If I didn't answer all your questions, I gave it my best shot, and hopefully uh, the Holy Spirit will enlighten you further as you think about it and make up your own minds. No comments? God's election should cause us to trust his sovereign plan, we may not understand every aspect of it, but we still should trust Him. Anyone uh, desiring to close for us today,
1: Father, Father God, reveal to us you. the truth, your Scripture, show us um, your um, your plan as much as we need to know of it, and uh, give us a uh, a peace and a comfort in leaving the details to you. There's some things that are not for us, and uh, we we embrace that. And thank you most of all for your love for us and for revealing um, your love for us through the scriptures. And uh, send us out now into the lives of others who profoundly need to know about Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. And I appreciate that prayer. Hope you all have a good week. Anyone want to say goodbye before we sign out here?
1: There we go. Hey, everybody, have a great week. You too, Jeff. Yep. See y'all later. Bye. Bye, Jeff. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Bye. Good to see you all.
1: You too. Good to hear you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Ray. That was very, very good. Was it? Yes, it was.
0: Thank you.